In your Bibles to Numbers chapter 12. Numbers, the fourth book in the Old Testament. Chapter 12, beginning to read with the first verse. I've been fighting a cold this week, and I hope I don't lose my voice in the middle of this. Many of you have expressed your solicitation and prayers that I get over my cold. I'm reminded of the little boy who prayed to God, and in the last, uh, as he was just closing his prayer, he said, oh, and he said, God says, take care of yourself. He says, if anything happens to you, we've all had it. <laughs> we've been following along in uh, the Exodus, the movement of the people of Israel from Egypt to Canaan, the promised land, and we've seen the various things that happened to them. We come here to a very sad and solemn event in the history of this movement, uh, the turning of Miriam and Aaron <clears throat> on their brother Moses. Uh, we find the complaint listed uh, in the opening verses in verse 1, and Miriam and Aaron spake against Moses because of the Ethiopian woman whom he had married, for he married an Ethiopian woman. Now, this was the public complaint that they noised abroad, and uh, the reference here to the Ethiopian or uh, Cushite woman, same in uh, terms of the Bible, uh, Ethiopian and Cushite are synonymous. Uh, apparently, Moses had married someone of another race, a foreigner, and this was used as a basis of complaint by Miriam and Aaron, and they sought to arouse public opposition to Moses. But the real cause, the private complaint, is apparently given to us in verse 2. And they said, and this is probably not publicly, but to one another, Hath the Lord indeed spoken only by Moses? Hath he not spoken also by us? They are jealous of Moses' prerogatives and of Moses' place. There was an element of truth in their statement. God had indeed spoken by Aaron and by Miriam. Uh, she was a prophetess and uh, Aaron was the high priest. But instead of being humbled by this great privilege, they uh, had their appetite whetted for more power and they couldn't bear that their brother should be even in a more privileged position. They did not wish to be recipients of a revelation that was second to that of Moses, nor did they wish to be under his uh, control, so to speak. We find the next uh, thing, the confrontation uh, by the Lord. It says, And the Lord heard it. It goes on to say, Now the man Moses was very meek above all the men which were upon the face of the earth. Under this confrontation by the Lord, the first thing that we're told of is the character of Moses, his meekness. This seems a little out of place and it uh, presents something of a problem to those of us who hold to the Mosaic authorship of this book. If uh, Moses wrote this and he really was so meek, how could he speak of himself as being the meekest man in all the world? And uh, yet, when we look at it carefully, we see that this is sandwiched in in a way that 
uh, helps us understand why it's stated. The Lord heard it is the last phrase of verse 2, and the first phrase of verse 4, And the Lord spake suddenly unto Moses, and unto Aaron, and unto Miriam, Come out, ye three, unto the tabernacle of the congregation. It's because Moses was meek, and this meekness is not weakness, that the Lord suddenly calls these out before him and confronts them. Meekness is the tendency not to always be defending myself, not to always be demanding my rights. It's a, a willingness to die to self, to turn the other cheek, not to resist evil when it's done to me, to let other people mistreat me and not retaliate. And this was the character of Moses. And because Moses would not retaliate and defend himself, God defended his servant Moses. Uh, Matthew Henry uh, makes this comment. He says, The more silent we are in our own cause, the more is God engaged to plead it. <clears throat> I wonder how meek you and I are. Uh, I was reading about a man who <clears throat> was a beggar and he went to uh, down the road and there was a tavern <clears throat> Uh, by the side of the road, uh, St. George and the Dragon was the name of the tavern. And he went around to the side door and he knocked and a lady came to the door and, and she said, What do you want? And he said, I was wondering if maybe you had some food for a poor man. I haven't had a meal in two days. And she said, No, we don't need any old bums around here. Go on away from here. You ought to work for a living, you no good bum. And she slammed the door. And so he went on down the road and he turned around and looked back at the sign St. George and the Dragon, and he went back and knocked on the door again, and she came to the door, and he said, uh, she said, what do you want? He said, I was wondering if I could speak to St. George this time. <laughs> well, I wonder, I wonder when people uh, meet you and me, whether it's St. George that they meet or whether it's the Dragon. And uh, Moses uh, was St. George. And he wouldn't retaliate and he wouldn't react. And God calls out Miriam and Aaron. In verse 5, The Lord came down in the pillar of the cloud and stood in the door of the tabernacle and called Aaron and Miriam, and they both came forth. Now, this is a very solemn and awful scene to me as I try to picture it in my imagination. The absolute uh, sovereignty of God and the absolute defenselessness of Miriam and Aaron before the God of the universe as he summons them to stand before him and answer for this thing that they have done. And somehow you can't help but get the feel of what the last great judgment scene when we all stand before the judgment seat of Christ will be like and just how utterly defenseless we will be. Uh, before the God of the universe. It's a staggering thought as you picture yourself standing there before him. Uh, the uh, next thing that we have brought out here is the contrast of modes of revelation. In verse 6, And he said, Hear now my words. If there be a prophet among you, I, the Lord, will make myself known unto him in a vision, and I will speak unto him in a dream. 
Now, he's giving a contrast here between the way he reveals himself and his word to a true prophet and the way he revealed it to Moses. If there be a true prophet among you, is what he's saying. My mode of revelation to him will be a dream or a vision. But not so Moses. My servant Moses is not so, who is faithful in all my house. Because Moses is faithful, I deal with him differently. He has been faithful to discharge the responsibility of overseeing my people, leading my people. And therefore, he will be trusted by me in a unique way, says God. In verse 8, with him will I speak mouth to mouth, even apparently, and not in dark speeches. And the similitude of the Lord shall he behold. God says, I'll deal with him differently. It'll be like a friend talking to a friend. As a man talks face to face, mouth to mouth. Uh, not only this, but I will grant to Moses to see a likeness of me. Now, no, no man has seen God at any time in his essence. In our mortal bodies, we are not capable of such a sight. But there have been... Uh, likenesses of God that men have been allowed to see. We remember in Exodus, Moses sought to see God's glory. I beseech thee, show me thy glory. And God said that he would let him see his back parts and granted him a partial revelation, a restricted revelation of himself. But Moses had the highest such revelations of anyone. And uh, so we're told here <clears throat> uh, that Moses is in a very privileged situation. God says, I won't speak to him in a vague way. I'll speak clearly and mouth to mouth. And I will grant him to see my likeness as I do speak with him. And we might just compare ourselves with these two. Are we like the true prophet who would see dreams and visions? Or are we like Moses that the Lord would speak to face to face? Or do we have that high privilege? No, we have a higher privilege. In the New Testament, <clears throat> uh, we are told this about the period that we live under and the blessings that we have. It says, If the ministration of death, written and engraven in stones, was glorious. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 7. And speaking of the ministration, the, the way in which God dealt with men... Uh, in that day, and particularly with Moses, if that was glorious, so that the children of Israel could not steadfastly behold the face of Moses for the glory of his countenance, which glory was to be done away. How shall not the ministration of the Spirit be rather glorious? It says the privileges that we have of having the Holy Spirit indwell us and communicate with us and enlighten our minds through the Scriptures, as to the Word of God and the will of God, to enable us to behold the face of Jesus Christ and the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, as we, through the Scriptures and by faith, see God in Christ. It's much more glorious, much more privileged than even Moses experienced. All of this leads up to a great challenge concerning their murmuring. God says, if that's the case, that I have so privileged Moses, and I have so dealt with Moses, 
Wherefore then were ye not afraid to speak against my servant Moses? How dare you seek to undermine his authority? How dare you, even in word, rebel against his leadership and his authority, says God? Oh, what a solemn challenge. And yet they, they knew, they knew that God had blessed Moses. They knew that Moses had not taken this upon himself, that he was called of God to the position that he occupied. They knew that God had been with him and blessed him. How dare they treat a servant of God in that way? God makes it a personal matter. My servant, Moses. We're reminded in the New Testament, in Romans 14, when Paul says, Who art thou that judges another man's servant? To his own master he shall stand, or he shall fall. Moses, you and I, we will have to answer to God. Who are we to judge another man's servant? We need to, as we see this complaint, and as we see the confrontation... Keep in mind the various characters or capacities that uh, Moses served, in which Moses served. Moses not only uh, was serving here in a religious or a church position, but he was also a civil authority. You had a union of church and state in the situation then. So actually Moses was the civil authority. And God is saying, how dare you rebel against the civil authority which I've instituted. Right away we are reminded of how God spells out in the New Testament his attitude towards those who despise and speak against and uh, in various ways seek to undermine the civil authority. In the 13th chapter of Romans, in the first verse, Philip's translation Every Christian ought to obey the civil authorities, for all legitimate authority is derived from God's authority, and the existing authority is appointed under God. To oppose authority, then, is to oppose God, and such opposition is bound to be punished. The honest citizen has no need to fear the keepers of the law and order, but the dishonest man will always be nervous of them. If you want to avoid this anxiety, just lead a law-abiding life. And all that can come your way is a word of approval. The officer is God's servant for your protection. If you're leading a wicked life, you have reason to be alarmed. The power of the law which is vested in every legitimate officer is no empty phrase. He is, in fact, divinely appointed to inflict God's punishment on evildoers. God tells us to obey the civil authorities. This is crucial in a day in which it's very common to speak against the civil authority, the government of our land. Young and old, we need to hear this. We need to hear God say, Wherefore didst thou not fear to speak against my servant when we have any tendency to join in such an undermining of authority? Thou shalt not speak evil of the ruler of thy people. Now, on the other hand, we would all realize that 
excessive government is also a great threat. Uh, we are in danger of some type of uh, totalitarian government that would move to quell all questioning. Francis Schaeffer, in his new book, <clears throat> The Church at the End of the 20th Century, calls attention to this danger as he refers to an article which appeared in the International Herald Tribune, May 22, 1970. He says <clears throat> in that article it's told about a scientist before a symposium in Paris describing the situation of monkeys with tiny radios attached to their brains whose mischievous thoughts are corrected by computer before they put them into action. The radio-controlled monkeys were reported by Spanish-born Dr. Jose Delgado, who now teaches at Yale University. He was reporting to a UNESCO interdisciplinary meeting on human aggressiveness. One group of chimpanzees with tiny sensors in their brains attached to radio transmitter receivers worn on a kind of a helmet has been placed on an artificial island in Holloman, New Mexico. While they roam apparently free, their behavior is constantly monitored and modified by the computer. Human patients suffering from psychomotor epilepsy have also had these instruments called Stemco Seavers attached. Dr. Delgado said that through such techniques, the next five years will see a revolution in the medical treatment of aggressive behavior as important as the appearance of antibiotics in the treatment of infectious disease. If a person is behaving antisocially, there are chemical and electrical mechanisms that we can know and modify, he said. And Schaefer's comment, this kind of manipulation is not future, it is present. It has not only been used with monkeys, but men, an elite can decide who has and who has not aggressive behavior. We are in danger of a totalitarian government. This is an opposite danger from a different direction to be aware of and to seek to guard against. But nonetheless, the Christian should always be found among the quiet in the land. Not only was Moses in the capacity of a civil authority, but he was also in the capacity of a church authority. He was a teacher of God's word. He was a leader of God's people. And as such, he was to be obeyed. In the New Testament, we have the system of government by which God would have his church led, laid down. He has ordained that his church shall be governed by elders. We read over and over in the New Testament of these elders as they lead and govern the New Testament church. Paul calls together the elders of the church at Ephesus in Acts 20. And he says, take heed over the flock over which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. And uh, while these officers are not to be lords over God's heritage, nonetheless... They are to be yielded to and submitted to. In Hebrews 13:17, Obey them that have the rule over you, and submit yourselves, 
for they watch for your souls as they that must give account. And he says, you do it, you submit that they may do it with joy and not with grief, for that is unprofitable for you if they do it with grief. He represented church authority, civil authority. He also represented Christ's authority. Moses was a picture of the position of the Lord Jesus Christ. Deuteronomy 18.18, a classic verse in the Old Testament, says, A prophet like unto thee will I raise up, God speaking to Moses. And I will put my words in his mouth, and it shall come to pass that whosoever will not hearken unto my words, which he shall speak in my name, I will require it of him. And that prophet that God would raise up was the Lord Jesus Christ. Moses represented Christ in his position as mediator between God and the people, in his position as the lawgiver. And Jesus Christ was the great lawgiver. But then he gave himself, and he came down, and he who gave the law was made under the law, born of a woman. He fulfilled the law perfectly. Then he took the guilt of the broken law upon himself as our substitute, and he died and paid for our sins in full. Thus, now God is able to forgive us, and it won't be at the expense of his law. It's offered to us as an accomplished thing, a free gift, but we must receive it. One of our men was visiting this week, and uh, as he sought to explain this to someone, uh, he was looking for some object that he could take and he could hold out, and he could say to that person, Now, this belongs to you, uh, but you don't have it. I have it. How can you get it? And the person would say, Well, I have to take it. And he said, that's right, although it belongs to you, still until you take it, you don't actually have it. And he was going to say, that's the way it is with Christ's salvation. He died for you, but you must actually receive him. And as he looked around for something to use to illustrate this with, he he couldn't find anything to use. And suddenly on the floor there was a Monopoly set. And he just reached down and picked up one of the Monopoly cards. He says, this belongs to you. And they said, yes. And he says... But you don't have it. I have it. And they said, yes. And he said, how can you get it? And they said, well, I have to take it. And he said, well, take it. And they reached out and they took it. And they looked at it and said, get out of jail free. (laughs) Exactly. Get out of jail free. The Lord Jesus Christ has paid for our sin in full. We must receive him. When we do, we get out of jail free. A free gift of forgiveness of salvation of a savior to come and live within to change me to take me to heaven all of this free purchased by Jesus Christ offered to me but I must take it by faith I must put my trust in Christ as my savior and surrender my will to him as my Lord the consequences we've seen the complaint the confrontation the various capacities that Moses served in but Notice the consequences of this rebellion against him. In verse 9, the anger of the Lord was kindled against them, and he departed. And the cloud departed from off the tabernacle. Sin separates us from God. 
Don't you see here kind of a picture of that awful final departure that will take place on Judgment Day when God will say to those who have rebelled against him, Depart ye cursed into everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. Depart. God departed. And as he departed, evil came. Behold, Miriam became leprous, white as snow. And Aaron looked upon Miriam, and behold, she was leprous. Oh, sin is a leprosy. And it spreads. And it brings utter ruin. Aaron pleads with Moses. Aaron said to Moses, Alas, my Lord, I beseech thee, lay not the sin upon us, wherein we have done foolishly, and wherein we have sinned. He confesses his sin. He's sorry for it. He pleads for forgiveness. And Moses shows his greatness here. As Moses does, freely and fully forgive. And Moses prays and says, uh, in verse 13, Moses cried out unto the Lord, saying, Heal her now, O God, I beseech thee. This is a tremendous thing, to forgive. Here's the key. When someone has wronged us, when someone has rebelled against us, we don't retaliate. And when they come and ask forgiveness, we freely, fully forgive. This is Christ-like. And uh, this is what we are to do. <clears throat> uh, I recently was holding a series of meetings and a lady came and uh, she was just utterly torn up. And uh, she spoke of how her husband had been unfaithful to her some months before. And she could not and would not forgive him. And uh, yet she herself was eaten alive, and she was destroying her children, and she knew it. And we talked about the parable of the unforgiving servant. The man whose master forgave him a tremendous debt that he couldn't pay, and then someone else owed him and couldn't pay, and he grabbed him by the neck, and he said, Pay me what thou owest. And I said, Aren't you that unforgiving servant? God's forgiven you a tremendous debt. Well, can't you forgive your husband? Shouldn't you forgive your husband? And she said, oh, I must, I will. God, I do. Take this out of my heart. And I came back the last night and was so, so set free. Forgiveness frees us. Moses was forgiving. Notice how God does handle the case, though. In verse 14, the Lord said unto Moses, If her father had but spit in her face, should she not be ashamed seven days? Let her be shut out from the camp seven days. And after that, let her be received in again. And Miriam was shut out from the camp seven days. And the people journeyed not till Miriam was brought in again. Miriam is healed, but she's humbled. And the people are slowed in their pace toward heaven. The whole congregation, six million people, are hindered 
in their march towards the promised land. Controversy, division, rebellion. God may forgive, it may be healed over, but it hinders God's people in the march forward to do his will. Brethren, these things are solemn things, and they're very applicable to us as a congregation, to us as we move out into the various walks of life. Let us, let us copy the meekness of Moses. We really don't have to copy it so much as we can claim it, because we can claim the meekness of Jesus Christ, who lives in us if we're Christians. Jesus Christ imparts his own nature. He who humbled himself to the manger and even to Calvary's tree, he will help me to humble myself, to be meek, like Moses was meek. That's the fruit of the Spirit, meekness. And as I yield to Jesus Christ and as I use the means of growth, he will create a similar meekness in me, where I won't always be demanding my rights. I won't be hitting back. I won't be retaliating. We're told if when you're buffeted for your faults, you take it patiently, what glory is that? But if when you do well and you are persecuted for it, you take it patiently, this is acceptable with God. For Jesus Christ has leave, left us an example that we should walk in his footsteps, who when he was reviled, reviled not again. When he suffered, he threatened not, but committed himself to him that judges righteously. He just put his trust in God, and he transferred his case up to God, and let God defend him, if God wanted him defended. Here's what we're to do. We're to be meek. Let us cultivate the habit of silence, rather than speaking against and criticizing. The tongue, says James, who can tame it? It's set on fire of hell, and it starts a fire everywhere it goes. James says, be swift to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Jesus, in the Sermon on the Mount, and speaking of critical comments, he says, <clears throat> Don't criticize people, and you will not be criticized, for you will be judged by the way you criticize others. And the measure you give will be the measure you receive. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and fail to notice the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me get the speck out of your eye when there's a plank in your own? You fraud, take the plank out of your own eye first, and then you shall see clearly enough to remove your brother's speck of dust. Let us cultivate the habit of silence. We give a permanence to words when we speak them. They can't be taken back very easily. Leave it to God to defend you or your cause. And finally, let us confess, as Aaron did, our sin. When we have rebelled against civil authority, against church authority, or against Christ's authority, let us humble ourselves and confess our sins. Ask for forgiveness. Ask for healing. Maybe you're here today and you've been really rebelling against Christ's authority. You really have 
not surrendered your will to Jesus Christ. You know that he is not Lord of your life. You have not told him that he could come into your heart and be master of you. Confess that as a sin to him today. And invite him to come in. Yield to him today. Ask him to heal you and to make you whole. He'll do it today. By faith, invite Christ into your heart. Do it right now as we pray. Let us bow our heads in prayer. If you've never really committed your life to Christ in earnest, but you would like to today, you pray in your heart the prayer that I pray out loud. Lord Jesus, I confess the sin of hardness against you, of putting you off, of rebellion. But Lord, I want to humble myself. I invite you to come into my life as my master. I ask for healing. Cleanse me of my leprosy. Make me whole. Be my Savior and forgive my sins. In Jesus' name, amen.